Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. He saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They straightway left their nets and followed him. Going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship with Zebedee, their father, <clears throat> mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So as we said, fishers of men. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, what a blessing it is to be able to fellowship with the saints. It's a Tuesday evening, and we're quite pleased that you provided us another opportunity to come out here and gather. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help me to speak clearly, give each one of them ears to hear. We're so grateful that you so loved the world you gave your son. He might come and die on that cross. So we honor you, we love you, and we praise you tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. I suppose all of us have had occasions where you look back on past conversations and wish you had mentioned something about Jesus to somebody. Maybe you've had a dialogue with someone and they said something that upon reflection you thought, I should have mentioned something about church or something about what I heard on radio or television or scripture. We've all been there. I think in this lesson this evening, if there's anything we'll come away with, it's the idea that God wants us to realize that our primary roles as Christians are to be fishermen. Now, we don't oftentimes think about it in that way. Jesus had a lot of things that he talked about, used a lot of agricultural terms, but his ministry was around the Sea of Galilee, so he has a good deal to say about fishing. He gives the illustration of the casting of the net. He brought in all the fish and separated the good from the bad. At the same time, he sent the disciples down into the Sea of Galilee, and they found a fish there. And you'll remember they thrust their hands right inside the fish's mouth, and there was a coin for paying the taxes. So in this regard, we learn that Jesus teaches in such a way that people can, can understand what it is that he's saying. But in verse 18, we learn that he, having moved into this particular area, he sees two brothers, and he tells them to follow him, and they forsook all. This was not the first time Peter and Andrew had ran into Jesus. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, we learn that Andrew was a former disciple of John the Baptist. You'll recall John the Baptist was making the announcement, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Andrew heard that. The scripture says Andrew and another disciple of John began to follow Jesus. Jesus turns and sees these two men following him, and he says, what is it that you want from me? And, and, and they said, we want to know where you live. The scripture says they came and spent the day with Jesus, and then at the end of that long period of time with the Lord, Andrew came to the conclusion, this truly is the Messiah. So when he left the house, he ran to his brother and he said, look, we found the one that the Old Testament prophesies about. And, and, they, and, and he brought Peter to, to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you're, you're Simon, the son of Jonah, but I'm going to call you Peter. 
That was the first time they met. So here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, when Jesus comes walking along and he says, follow me, they instantly depart because they already have some kind of connection with him. I don't want you to think Jesus just walked up to a total stranger and said, follow me. And they just left everything and started following him. There was some kind of relationship. They knew a little bit about who who he was. But it does tell us in verse 18, they were casting a net. One thing you'll notice about the people Jesus called to be his disciples, including Matthew, who was a tax collector. Jesus didn't call anybody who wasn't busy. Everybody had a job. He didn't call anybody that was lazy. He called people that were busy doing something so that he could transform them into busy people for him, for the kingdom, for doing things connected with with the word of God. Well, here in verse 18, casting a net into the sea. Fishermen are very hardy persons. I mean, these are hard workers. And in ancient times around the Sea of Galilee, for the most part in that fishing industry, these individuals were going to go and fish at night. Make it a whole lot easier when you're using a net because at night the net wouldn't be easily visible to the fish as it would be if they were trying to do this in the daytime, sun up on top, but casting a net into the sea and and they were fishers. Well, what is the significance to, to any of this? Well, because they were professional fishermen, Jesus uses their occupation to teach them something new. You can see also in verse 21 and 22, he did the same thing with with James and John. But let's let's work on that sentence there in verse number 19. Follow me. We have to ask the question, what does it mean to follow the Lord? We are not talking about pursuing the Lord as if he's walking down the street and you're just coming behind him. This is a rabbinic phrase, almost like a Hebraic statement in which a rabbi would encourage particular people to come and become his pupils to be his student, so he could provide them with the instruction that he believed that they need. And, of course, a person who traveled with the rabbi lived with that rabbi full time. Jesus did not have 12 men who had 12 different jobs who were traveling with him. They were with him all the time. He provided for them out of the substance that he had. They traversed the the country of Israel. Jesus gave the statements regarding the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and people were learning in, on mountaintops and in fields. They were learning in prayer circles. They were learning as he taught from a boat in a variety of different circumstances. They would not have been able to do that had they been working regular jobs. But Jesus says, follow me. So that's the role. That's the verb. That's the command. I'm not asking you to come and lead me. I want you to follow me. I want you to listen to what it is that, that I have to, to say. Now, it is true that people who make good followers uh, very often make good leaders. didn't say always, but, but it's true that good followers do make good leaders because if a person is teachable and they can be led, then that same kind of person is going to convey that same example to other people in leading them. 
But a person who's unteachable, a person who's hostile to opinions that are different than theirs and, and don't want to change how they do something, that kind of a person is not going to make, make it as a good leader. But when Jesus says, follow me, me is the, is the direct object here. So I don't want you comparing me to one of the other rabbis in Israel. Don't compare me to one of the Greek philosophers. Not Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, anybody else. Don't compare me to Buddha. Don't compare me to the, to the people who are involved with Hinduism or the animism that's in Africa or any of the Greek and Roman gods and their many different legends. You get your eyes fixed on me. Jesus is unique. He cannot be compared to anybody and anybody that you think of saying, well, well, so-and-so is kind of like Christ. I'm telling you, whoever you try to compare with, with Jesus, that person, that individual is out of his or her league. Never been anybody like Christ. And scripture says, he that hath seen me hath seen the father. No one has ever come into this world whose sole purpose was to die and to bear the sins of guilty people. So that those guilty people could then find themselves made innocent by the by faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with with the Lord having interposed himself between the wrath of God. And then here the, the, the penalties that should have come on man, all of that fell on him so that now. We've been acquitted. It's not that you and I never were guilty of sin, but the charges have been dropped. So if someone like that says, follow me, I think we ought to pay attention to him and not spend our time uh, trying to tell other people, well, you know, uh, so-and-so told me that, that, that Joseph Smith in, in Mormonism, he's a, he's a wonderful teacher, and I think if we follow him, that's just the same as following Jesus. That's not what he said here. There were thousands of religions available during the time when Jesus walked the earth. He said, follow me. Now, that makes him somewhat narrow-minded. See? I think, I think it was Jesus, if I'm not mistaken, that, that said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to, not, to life. So I guess, based on what he says, it is not always bad to be narrow-minded. Yeah. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. In inevitably, the consequence of following the Lord is change. He'll make you, he'll transform you into something. It is impossible, I believe. <clears throat> hey, John, turn that up a little bit so it won't be, get so cold in here. It is impossible, I believe, for anyone to follow Jesus and not change. Okay? If you do it the right way. If, if you tell me that you've been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ for a very long time and you've never changed any of your opinions, you've never changed any of the, any of the, the, the things that you do and the, the places you go and the kind of uh, people you run with and all of that kind of a thing. If you say that to me, I'm going to ask you, then, then, then how is it that you are following him? Because he changes people. Look at the sentence again. I will make you fishers of men. That, that is to say I'm going to turn you into something that you're not. You're already a natural fisherman. But you, you, you lack the ability to catch men, to catch women. That's the key. 
And so he's got to give fishing lessons to these people. If he says, I will make you, then that means he has an end, an end result in mind, what, what it is that he wants. Now, most of us, when we think about some of the, um, the things that we have to make, if you ever had shop class back, at, back in high school, then you understand that you, you probably had to have some idea of what you wanted to create before you started most people don't usually just start building something then just say, let's see what it turns out to be. Usually have some idea. And it's, it's the same even when we look into the, the prophet Jeremiah. He gives the illustration where the Lord says to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and, and there he sees the potter sitting there with the wheel. And Jeremiah observes that he takes the pot, the clay, he puts it up there on the wheel, and then he's working it. And then there was something wrong with it. And rather than throwing it away, he just started working on it again, refashioned it, remade it, reshaped it, so that in the end, it became exactly what he wanted. And so God said to Jeremiah to speak to the children of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done with this clay? That is to say, in my mind, I have, a, I have an image of what you should be, and as I mold you and make you, your purpose is molded and made within that image. So the potter who makes a cup makes a cup so that it might contain fluids or something. The person who makes a fork makes a fork so that it will be able to hold different things. The purpose is always in the vessel when it's made, and the, the intent is always in the mind of the person who makes it. Jesus says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He already has in his mind what he believes a fisher of men ought to be, even though these folks are professional fishermen. Sometimes what we think we know is not enough when the Lord begins to work on, uh, on changing us. So there, there's the transformation. I, I will make you. That's what the Lord will do. All of us, we could buy T-shirts to say under construction. Yeah, there will never be a time in your life where where your life or my life will be totally perfect. It's impossible. And of course, some of us, we probably need shirts with the letters real big. We'll give that to both the Johns. You see, uh, under construction. Well, if, if God is going out of his way to provide for us the change that we need, then he, he must honestly believe there's something that, that is wrong with us. Now, now remember, Jesus told Nicodemus about the kingdom of God, except you're born again, you can't enter it. Now, what, what would be more offensive than to tell a human being you weren't born correctly? To tell somebody you were born wrong. That is to say, you need to be born again. That's what he told this very, very learned man by the name of Nicodemus. And, and now here are some fishermen, and the Lord's telling them, I need to turn you into fishers of men because what you know is inadequate for the task that I have set before you. Well, let's talk a little bit about these fishers of men. <clears throat> the, uh, the fishermen around Galilee... 
when, when, when these good folks were going out at night, they had these big, huge nets. The bottom rope on the net usually had some weights on it, something heavy. And then the top parts of the net would have some cork floats so that it would kind of be, you know, kind of stay upward. And the, uh, there would usually be eight or nine people that would stay on the shore who would hold a drawstring for that big, huge net. And they still fish like this on the Sea of Galilee today. They take the larger part of the net that's going to fan out this way, and they're going to go and get on a boat. That boat's going to go a few meters off the shore, and then those people are going to get out of the boat, stand in that water that's going to be fairly deep, and then they're all going to spread out, a lot of feet in between them. And then the people on this side are going to start making a semicircle and start making their way towards the shore. Now, they're doing this at night under the stars. And as they're slowly but surely walking to the shores, the fish, for some reason, don't have sense enough to know to try to go over the net or to turn and go back and go around the people. They just keep trying to go through the net because they can't hardly see the net in the dark. And by the time they get to shore and this thing is kind of closed in on them, then everybody gets up on shore and they just pull all of the hundreds of fish up there. And then they begin to separate the clean from the unclean. Because according to the Levitical law, Jewish people could not eat fish without vertebrae, not bones. So they didn't do shrimp, crawfish, and all that good stuff that folks down in Louisiana like. Yeah, they had to, had to forego all of that. And we're, we're quite fine with the people who don't want to eat it now. They leave more for us. When my wife and I go to Texas, we can go to Papa Do's. Sit there and eat all, all that good food there. Okay, so I will make you fishers of men. How many of you in here like to fish? See, I know there are a lot of you in here that, that do because I've heard you tell stories. <laughs> well, you know, pe- people, who, people who fish, they, 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 like, you know, they, they like to spend time at it, but there are different ways to do it. I've got a good friend of mine who's a pastor. He likes to go fly fishing. I've enjoyed that, just being there with him. Uh, one time, my wife and I were down in Missouri. We were at a pond, and it was just fun just throwing the line out and bringing it back, throwing it out. Some people like to set bank lines. I've got another friend out on the West Coast that has a big, beautiful boat. He's a professional fisherman. just takes people out all year round, I mean, way out into the ocean just so they can go fishing. But, you know, like most kids, me and my friends, we tried to fish when we were tiny, and down the street from where I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, we had this big, huge wooded area, and it was by a power plant. But in that wooded area, which in circumference might have been about a mile and a half wide, there was always a pond there. I don't know who was putting water in that thing, and I don't know why there were always fish in it, but my friends and I, none of us had fishing rods. And being a city boy, nobody in my family ever bothered to go uh, to any kind of outfitting store to get a get any kind of fishing equipment. We just raided our mom and dad's uh, sewing kits. We got some thread, twisted it all up, put a hook on the end of it, went to the, the woods, and the woods had trees coming up all over it, so we could climb up in the trees, and then we could sit over there and hang the, the, the little... Uh, the little string down there in the water, and then here all these little tiny fish that are in there, we always put that hook just about maybe 
a half inch below the surface of the water. So by the time that fish grabbed it, he couldn't line his body up this way and swim away. He was just hooking. We snag and we pull it up. And then sometimes we'd set the line and tie the other end around the trunk of the tree. I'm telling you, we were professional fishermen, folks. That's, <laughs> nobody could do it the way we could. But when you're seven and eight and nine and ten and you don't have access to a lot of these other things, you improvise. You improvise in order to have to have a good time. Well, if 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 people go through all of that, then you think of some of the other, you know, ingenious ways that people will fish, not just humans, but even animals. Now, we all like stories of, you know, big game hunting and and, and all of that. And, and I don't know that hardly a three-month period goes by and I don't have somebody show me a picture of a fish they caught somewhere, you know, big, huge one. But the other day I was looking online and they, they, they had a, um, amazingly, a big osprey. It's one of the biggest birds on this planet, huge. And, you know, if, uh, if when an osprey hunts, of course, they just go down close enough to the surface of the water. They're going to grab something and come right up. But in this image that I saw, it had grabbed a, a shark that was about three or four feet long. And when they zoomed in, showed the picture of the osprey flying away into the wild blue yonder with the shark in its talons. In the shark's mouth was a fish. So the, the hunter got hunted. I thought, wow. Isn't that, isn't that a story? And so even with that, I, I remember one time coming home from California and a friend of mine, and he's one of these outdoors people, who he, he and his wife have a huge garden, and they refuse to go into a grocery store except to buy flour or sugar, something like that. So in that garden, they grow everything from their spices, to tomatoes and all that stuff, but then he scuba dives in the ocean out there, and one day he, he, he told me, he said, look, I've, I've got some bear meat and I want to send this home with you. I said, okay. And uh, so that, you know, bear meat has a strong scent to it. I got on that airplane, had it in my backpack, put the backpack in the overhead compartment. We get about, I don't know, seven or 8,000 feet up in the air. It's recycling that air. And then pretty soon everybody's making that sound. What, what is that smell? On this airplane, you know, and people were really complaining about it. They didn't like it at all. And, of course, I didn't want to let anybody know it was me, so I got in with them. I said, I don't know who it is, but I'm telling you one thing. They need to start traveling better than to have all of that. Well, the, the story with that is why I wanted the bear meat. My, my friend told me he was out hunting, and he had tags for who knows what all. But he, he said he saw a deer. And he said he shot that deer. I don't know if it was five, six hundred yards away, but he shot the deer. The deer went down. Then the deer jumped up, started running. So he said he finally got to the spot where he shot it, started tracking it, the blood trail. So you know how long this is taking. okay? he started tracking it and he said it's getting to the point where it's almost, you know, getting close to dusk. And he said he continues to walk and he looks and he says up in the distance, he saw just through those leaves. He said he saw a bear stick his head up. He had a bear tag, too. So he said he shot the bear, walked all the way over there, and sure enough, there was the bear, and there was the deer that he had shot because the bear had devoured three-quarters of the deer. And he said, Daryl, you've got to take some of this meat because I've got a 1,000 pounds of bear meat, 
and I don't know what to do with, with, with all of this. So everybody has their own stories, you know, when it comes to a lot of this. And folks like big game hunting, but have you ever thought about the fact that as a Christian, you've got to consider that fishing is also a form of hunting? In Hebrew, in Arabic, in Syriac, whenever you talk about fishing, you're talking about hunting. That's how they describe a fisherman, the hunter of fish. And you know as well as I do, the same bait doesn't work for every fish. The same lures don't work for every fish. And you can go in certain places and find certain kinds of fish, and you still have to be savvy about it because if you go at the wrong time of the day or the wrong time of the year, you may not get anything at all. So it's a form of hunting. But Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He's telling them, I'm going to change your mind, change your perspective so that you begin to see people as individuals that need to be caught. You talk about big game hunting. You, you think about some of the folks you believe are the hardest people to win to Christ. You ought to make it your ambition in life. To number one, start praying for them. The Father set a trap for these people, that they'll come to know who you are. Bring somebody into their life that'll put tracks in front of them for them to read. Father, I pray that, that you'll just work it out so that the television will turn to a Christian station or the radio somehow will end up on a Christian station. Let somebody in the grocery line talk about the Lord so that they'll begin to think about these things. You have to start praying that way because you may be the one that plants the seed and then as Paul says, somebody else comes along and waters the seed, but it's God who ultimately gets the increase. Whether you believe it or not, somebody likely prayed for you before you ever thought about God. Mm -hmm. Might have been a grandma, grandpa, an auntie or an uncle, a friend or a neighbor or somebody that prayed for you when you were born. Said, Father, let this person come to know who you are as a savior. Fisher of men. So don't be intimidated by the fact that some people are hostile towards you when it comes to your faith or hostile towards any kind of religion at all. Don't be intimidated by it because God can change it just like that. He can change a heart just like that. How long did it take him to change you? I've seen God change people's heart in just a few moments. I've seen a 35 minute teaching or a message that I might have preached somewhere Less than an hour, change a person, and they move from a life of sin to serving God. So don't ever, don't ever be intimidated by that. There are people that will go all over this world to do some hunting. They'll go to East Africa because they want to shoot a lion. Some will go to South America because they want to traipse through the jungle so that they can shoot a jaguar. And People don't mind spending a lot of money in order to go and do that, but what, what is the price of a soul when we want to reach one of them? Tell them about the king. One time preaching under a tent, I recall a, a lady whose, whose name was the same as my wife. She brought a friend to that camp meeting. And um, th this was a, a camp meeting for, I forget the name of the, the group, the ministerial group at this time, but, but these folks were coming all across 
from the, from the West Coast. They're coming out of Oregon. They're coming Washington State. They're coming uh, Wyoming, Colorado, different places. So they're just people everywhere, campers everywhere. And I'm staying in a in a cabin there on the grounds. And this one night, this lady comes under the tent, and I and I saw her, and I recognized her. I greeted her, and I she was with a friend. So I said, Well, well, what what brings you out to church, you know, tonight? And she said, well, I lost a bet to my friend here. And and since I lost the bet, I promised her I'd come to camp meeting every night. I said, oh, did you? Said, every night. So I said, I, I take it you're not a Christian. She said, no, I'm not a Christian at all. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to make a deal with you. I said, I guarantee by the end of this camp meeting, I said, you're going to be on your knees in this altar crying out to God just like these other people you're going to see. And she looked at me. <laughs> And said, whatever, and just turned and walked away. And they went and took their seats, and the tent was packed that night. And I got up, and I ministered the word of God and and, and preached. And sure enough, at the, at the altar call, there were lots of people coming down in the altar. I mean, it was one of those tents where you got sawdust and everything down there. So people were kneeling, and they're praying, and, and they're talking to the king. No movement out of her first night. Second night, preached no movement out of her. Third night, she's kind of wiggling in that chair and paying attention to what I'm saying, but I, I can tell she's locked in. See, she's listening to me. And I think it was about that Thursday night or maybe that Friday evening. I can't remember what I preached on, but I know that at the end, there was a gentleman in the back and and he had tattoos from his neck all the way down. I mean, every part where you could see exposed skin was a tattoo. And there was a young lady next to him. But the man with the tattoo, he was just crying and crying through the message. So I know as a, as a minister, he's under conviction. I see what God's doing because I'm paying attention to what's happening as I'm teaching and ministering the word of God. So in my mind, I'm saying, okay, fish on the line, fish on the line. See, God's doing something. And in those kind of meetings, as Tiff will tell you, I'll walk the aisles and walk back and forth. And I mean, I point people out and say, go get on your knees. I don't just leave them sitting back there when I know they're under conviction. So this this gentleman was back there with it, this lady. And so I said, come on down there. I said, I can see God's dealing with you. Just go on down there and uh, let him finish up what he's begun. Well, later on, I found out that that. Young lady, I thought it was his sister, it was actually his daughter. He'd been in jail for I don't know how many years. Had just gotten out of jail a few days ago. Here he is up under that tent, hearing the word of God preached. Once I was done with him and he was making his way to that altar and I was looking at different people and stuff, I happened to turn and way down there on that other end, on that corner, I saw that little girl down on her knees with her hands lifted up and she was just crying, calling out to God. Here's a lady told me that she wasn't interested in God, and she basically laughed at me when I told her she'd come down to get right with the king, but there she was. Now, the lady that brought her, she didn't know what was going to happen during the camp meeting, but she certainly did believe that something would happen. Folks, don't ever give up on anybody. It doesn't matter how hard that heart seems to be or how difficult that person might be. There's, there is a message that will reach every human person on this planet. They just need to be in the right place at the right time with the right person giving it. That's all that needs to happen.
Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, if you're going to fish, sometimes you've got to fish even during the storm. A lot of people survive the storms. And a lot of good stories come out of that sometimes. The, the, the time that I lived in Louisiana, before Tiff and I married and come up here, I used to preach a lot down there on that gulf. And in that church down there, they had a lot of people that ran them shrimp boats down there. And they had a lot of stories of working in the gulf. And then there were some of those, those oil rigs men who worked on those platforms way out there in the gulf where a helicopter had to take them out there, drop them off, and they worked for a month or six weeks. Then a helicopter come back and get them and bring them home, and they're off for about a month or so. But imagine the storms that I heard about then. Listening to these people. Well, as a Christian, you have to deal with those also. Just because you have bad weather, you can't stop being a fisher of men. Just because you have tough times. You have to be a fisher of men no matter what takes place. And I think the best way to look at it is this. Whatever it is that you do as an occupation right now, that's just a hobby. To pay your bills and to help to help keep a roof over your head and clothes on your back so that you can be primarily a fisher of men. That's the role. That's God's plan for you. Everything else is secondary. But, but for us to be a good witness, that doesn't mean that, that you have to be walking up and down the road and, and uh, telling folks they need to get saved or they're lost and all that kind of a thing. But it does mean that your life needs to reflect what you believe as a Christian. And you can witness to people without ever quoting a scripture. You can let your conversation be shaped and fashioned by the word of God. You don't have to say to kids, we know the Bible says thou shalt not murder. You can just tell them, look, you're not supposed to be killing people. Okay? That's, that's a scripture. You don't have to tell somebody you're not supposed to bear false witness. You can let them know telling lies is not a good thing. You need to avoid that. That's still scriptural conversation. And to be a fisher of men, you have to be able to identify those people that need to be caught. So you need to know the difference between the ones that are in the net and the ones that are not in the net. But even though Jesus gave the parable about the casting of the net and said the kingdom of heaven is like that, and he said when you bring the net in, you've got to separate the good fish from the bad fish and the clean fish from the unclean fish, we are dealing specifically with unclean people. If they're in sin, they're unclean. But you've got to catch the fish before you can clean the fish. You, you've heard people say things like this. If, if I could ever stop doing so-and-so, I'll start going to church. You can't clean yourself, see. But but once the fish is caught, then God can do what what He needs to do in working on them. Uh, Peter took too long in learning this lesson, and that's why on a rooftop in the book of Acts, chapter ten, the scripture says God came to him in a vision, and in that vision he saw a big sheet coming down out of the heavens, and on that sheet was all the kinds of food that Leviticus says you're not supposed to eat. Yeah, so he, he looked on that sheet, and there, there was some cat, catfish, and he, he, he had um, some, some pork ribs, some baby backs, and I mean, just, just all kind of stuff on there, and he, he, he just, no, he just can't do this. This isn't good for me. The law says I can't have it. Then the Lord had to let him know, my son has died on the cross, and don't you call anybody unclean. And, and that's when the Roman man who had sent his servants to that house where Peter was staying, 
Peter had to go to that man's house, preach the gospel to him, and he watched the family get saved, and the Spirit of God fell on that family in Acts chapter 10. So that, that proves to us that when it comes to people, we don't look at people and say, okay, that person is the scum of the earth, and they're, they're just too messed up in order to come into the kingdom of God. God wants them to be caught. And believe me, there is bait for everybody. The atheist who says that they refuse to acknowledge that there's, there's a God, I guarantee there's bait. It will attract that person's attention. Romans chapter 1 makes it very plain that the heavens even declare the glory of God. And, and so people, people are without excuse because everything testifies to the existence of God. Sometimes a person can go through a bad breakup and find their heart in a condition where they're ready to hear something about God. Sometimes a person can lose a lot of money then suddenly find themselves willing to listen to people when it comes to the things of God. So Jesus is teaching us with these disciples that if you're going to follow me, uh, a disciple is more than a convert. You know what a convert is? A convert is somebody that professes with their mouth they, they love the Lord, and maybe they may start going to church. They might even buy a Bible. But that's pretty much as far as their relationship with God go. Sometimes they won't get plugged in to a fellowship. Sometimes they're not interested in gospel music. Sometimes they're not interested in, in reading in, in reading scripture or whatever it might be. It might just be something that they'll have on the shelf. That that person who considered themselves a convert because they signed a card or went through a system of training in a fellowship. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is someone who submits to the yoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, listens to his teachings, reads his word, and allows this word to conform us more and more to his image, and it takes discipline to be a disciple. It does. Now, whatever, whatever occupation you've had all your life, you know as well as I do, there were times in the morning you did not want to get up and go to work. But I've told people for years that hungry babies and bills will get you out of bed. I don't feel like going today. See, When the car payment's due, you, you, you feel like you need to be there. See? So as a Christian then, we look at the discipline of, of, of walking with him and learning from him. And what makes it exciting is that there's always something different to learn that you didn't know before. I guarantee the disciples couldn't wait to hear what was going to happen the next day or to see what was going to happen. They were so excited about listening to this man teach. One time he talked for 72 hours. Nobody left. Then when it was time to leave, he said, feed these people. What are you talking about? Feed all of these people. Thousands of folks out here, Lord, feed these people. Then they found a little boy, had a little two-piece fish dinner. Somebody had some bread. He blessed it. The disciples came back and forth and took it and fed all of those people and still had baskets of fragments and extra food that was there. And the disciples afterwards, I'm sure they were saying, that man is so much smarter than we are. But 72 hours, they sat there and listened to that man teach and the crowd didn't diminish. We've all been in good services, but you've never been in one like that. Okay? Yeah, we, 
Yeah, we, we, we've all been to good church services, and I'm sure we've all been to some good concerts, and we've probably all been to some good places where people are praying, having a good time, but nobody is going to tell me they've been anywhere where after 48 hours they were saying, look, you head on home, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. But I pray the Lord, you know, give us that kind of passion and excitement for the things of the Lord and truly make us fishers of men and not be afraid. Jesus is the captain of the vessel. He'll show us how to fish. The last illustration you'll remember. Jesus had told the disciples something. Disciples didn't pay attention too well. Jesus told the fishermen after they had been working all night long. Said get back in the boat. We're going back out there. We're going to catch something. The disciples said we were just out there. We didn't catch a thing. You're a carpenter's son. What makes you think you know about this fishing thing? He said, get the boat ready. We're going back out there. Sure enough, they went out there and they caught more fish than they knew what to do with. Just the time we think we've become experts at soul winning, loving people and reaching people, God comes along and says, you know what? There's something you can do to tweak that. And it probably cause a few more fish to get caught up in the net. But you have to be willing launch out into the deep. See? To launch out into the deep. To do what you haven't normally wanted to do. Amen? Praise God. God make us all soul winners. I hope the king turns you guys into as good a fishermen as we boys were when we were tiny. Boy, I tell you, wow. Oh my goodness. Come on, let's pray. Father, we're grateful tonight. We love you because you have called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Lord, we're so grateful that having redeemed us, you have given us this word of reconciliation to let mankind know that there is a relationship with you if they repent of their sins. We're so grateful for the cross. We're crucified thereon. And the life we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.